Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a very special guest today. And um, Boutran is the director of one of the coolest movies I've seen recently, The Paper Tigers. And we're going to talk a lot about that eventually. But I want to get into your background and how you got into things. But um, you're a writer, director, producer on this film and you know wore many 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 hats and we'll get into the whole history of all that but uh you were born in olympia washington you grew up there um what do you i'm always interested in people's geography and where they're from and how it kind of forms their creative life i've spent time in olympia before it's a cool town um you know what role did olympia play in, in creating you as a filmmaker well either is that or a tulsa Oklahoma, my, 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 my history could have been vastly different. Uh, basically, uh, my uncle was there. So when my, my, my family came uh, after the Vietnam War uh, to find a uh, place to settle, it was between two uncles, uh, you know, at different locations. So it was either Tulsa or, or uh, Olympia. So uh, I think, uh, I think I dodged the bullet. I don't know, I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so the, that was my family when they settled in Olympia, Washington. I, I was born there shortly thereafter, and it was the first of my uh, generation and first of my family to be born in the United States. So that kind of like definitely informs kind of the, um, you know, I guess how I grew up because it is a smaller town, uh, but also quite a lot of Vietnamese uh, immigrants. So there was a, a very close-knit community. And actually, matter of fact, my producer, Alan Duong, also was born in Olympia and came from that area as well. So we, but we didn't know each other when we were growing up, but it was actually when we ended up moving to Seattle and making films and started crossing paths through that way. Uh, so again, it was just kind of a funny way that this small town, you know, has seemed to kind of produce uh, at least two of us uh, to, to go on to some, some interesting thing. Well, there's a lot of creativity and, and artists and bands and things that came out of Olympia. Um, and, you know, many of them are people who ended up moving to Seattle in that direction. To, to further those things, but Olympia has a long, long tradition of-, of uh, Matt Groening, yeah, at Evergreen. Yeah. Uh, it's the, kind of the hippie art school college for sure. Yeah, that was definitely part of that history. Yeah, and did you have o- older siblings who, who were born in Vietnam? Um, yeah, so I'm the, I'm the youngest, and so I'd be, I'm the first of my generation uh, to be born here. We're really oh, the only- Yeah. Well, and, and so, yeah, I believe that would probably give you uh, a specific um, perspective as being like the youngest who, and of course your family is still probably very steeped in Vietnamese culture, having just, just come from there, right? Yeah, Which I mean, is- it was definitely kind of a, yeah, bicultural uh, upbringing, you know, it's, you know, we spoke Vietnamese and then English uh, at school. So it's kind of similar that we would have different foods, you know, you have noodles and rice at home, but also hamburgers and pizza. So same goes up for entertainment. You know, we would watch uh, Hong Kong movies and, and rent TVP series uh, from, from the mom and pop kind of town video stores and watch all those, binge all these things before we knew what binging was. We'd watch all that stuff at home, but then go out and watch Spielberg and James Cameron in the movie theaters. Mm, that's interesting. Well, and, and being 
a, a long time kung fu movie nerd i i had to i had to get follow the same path to find those movies a lot of times and then of course i also i needed them subtitled so sometimes i was pretty bummed when <laughs> you know like oh that they didn't have this and for me um and I've told this story before on the podcast, but I got into Kung Fu movies because we had a horror host in Indiana. I grew up in Indiana, uh, Bloomington, Indiana, hour south of Indianapolis, College Town. And in Indianapolis, they had a horror host every Friday night that would do horror movies. And his name was Sammy Terry. And right after Sammy Terry, they had Black Belt Theater and they would show mm-hmm. Shaw Brothers movies, you know, as an 80s kid. I loved when they had like ninja stuff, <laughs> you know, because you grew up on ninja movies on HBO, right? For me, it was like, I always just appreciated Kung Fu movies and got into them. So, but I'm sure, um, you, now you were talking about how this, this was a link to your culture too, by being able, you were watching some of these movies probably and, and some of your friends probably were not, right? at school or, and and so it was probably a special thing for your family right to to watch these movies together or am i yeah right? it was a weird <laughs> no i think that's definitely true i think it was also a way to you know for our families to get closer together and kind of like i guess get dispatches from the east if you will and just kind of get the latest and fashion and style and all those things and you know all that there were movie stars you know uh being built uh in asia uh that you know again like you're saying nobody knows about here i just remember having a school bus conversation, you know, I was a kid and then, you know, people, kids, kids were debating who's the best, like Van Damme or Seagal or whatnot. And then I was like, oh, Jackie Chan. And then like, you know, <laughs> nobody knew who that was. So I was just kind of like, well, you know, you just had this thing that was kind of your own and it's almost a funny thing, but you know, you kind of hope that people can kind of start to recognize, you know, what it is that we were doing. And, uh, you know, right. Which, uh, and, as you can see, the influence is incredible. And then Jackie, Jackie Chan, of course, you know, um, uh, became popular here and then it was probably similar to like in punk rock when 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 Nirvana hit it big and suddenly the cool mm. kids it was okay to have a mohawk all of a sudden after like yeah. years of us getting bullied and beat up for being different and yeah. I'm sure I, I'm sure that when Jackie Chan and Jet Li and all that kind of happened here that was it was kind of a similar thing of you guys I'm sure some of your friends were like hey how got us into this stuff a long time ago right yeah certainly yeah Yeah, that or just even um like comic books i mean now geekdom is kind of a badge of badge of honor now but you know to be a comic book nerd or comic book geek you know at that time you know you you were welcoming punches to the face or something like that so it's like you know all those it's an interesting hanging out like eventually you know uh i think you you know all good things eventually find their way uh you know maybe there's a, a loyal uh first followers or beta testers, you know, or, or, or early adopters, but eventually, you know, if it's really something good, I think it's meant to be shared with the world. Well, and, and a lot of the questions that I'm asking about your childhood, part of it is that I do this with everybody, but also it's so much a part of the paper tigers is, is there's, there's a feeling of, of nostalgia for childhood. And I'm, I'm guessing that some of that is autobiographical in the sense of, because one of the cool things about the movie is th- these are Asian American characters who don't fit some of America's silly stereotypes of of, of immigrants, and and they're really nuanced characters, but they 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 feel drawn from your experience from your, from your childhood. At least it seems to me. <laughs> on a, on yeah, I mean yeah. 
certainly. I mean, the whole biography of, you know, doing martial arts as a young person or, you know, also through the 80s and 90s, the, the kind of the beginning scenes you have through the VHS aesthetic is definitely something that I grew up when I, that's how I learned making movies, actually, just grabbing the family camcorder and making movies. Big inspiration was, you know, Robert Rodriguez at that time, Rebel Without a Crew, um, but also just breakdancing videos, and skateboard videos and, and all these battles that you'd watch. You know, it's the same same kind of aesthetic and same type of that was like our YouTube. Uh, before you know YouTube came on the on the scene we were trading videotapes and trading you know this and that uh, b-boy battle and so on so you, you just had this underground culture element certainly that's that's a huge element but also kind of like how kind of like growing old and growing away from it as you know with the story as these three guys who have to avenge their master but now they're out of shape and they're you know uh, they have family they have jobs they have wives they have like all these other obligations so it's also a child so exploring you know uh, kind of taking off that rose-colored glasses about childhood, but also like whether those things are still important for you now. Now, and I want to, I'm interested in your influences as, as a filmmaker. Um, and you mentioned that you had kind of these two separate worlds that you were, you were living in as a, as a film fan. And, and I think to a degree, like all of us who are in America trying, you know, chasing down Kung Fu movies, as you know, I did too, you know, you had your favorites of that genre and you had your favorites of kind of the more mainstream cinema. So from both, what, what were some of the huge, big influences in your childhood and today um, in both like kind of mainstream Hollywood genre and, and, and some of the, uh, the Asian films that were some of your favorites? Growing up, it was definitely... Uh... Bruce Lee as a icon and as a as a kind of a, a hero and as a, as a just kind of a, a character that you know that was just this idol. Uh, but it wasn't until watching Jackie Chan that I wanted to actually make movies and actually figure out how what does that actually take you know the whole mechanics because there was like a musicality and kind of a rhythm to what Jackie Chan does, uh, but also kind of a relatableness um, and affability that you know is kind of an everyman where Bruce Lee is kind of this. Greek god or Chinese god, but you right. know, yeah, you can't, yeah, you know, you're every man. So I thought that was really accessible, and I, I started going down that rabbit hole. And Jackie Chan's influence was where he'd say were Charlie Chaplin and Gene Kelly and Buster Keaton and Fred Astaire. And then you kind of go down that rabbit hole of silent movies and uh, uh, musicals, and just really appreciating movies as a whole. Um, so those were kind of like all the things in visual storytelling, and, and you know, I appreciate, like I said, James Cameron, and then Steven Spielberg and Hitchcock and uh, all those great filmmakers as well. But for me personally, I had uh, the influence of mentors, Corey Yoon, who was a, a giant in Hong Kong cinema. As Jackie Chan's one of Jackie Chan's uh, cohorts and contemporaries. He, he uh, directed a lot of Jet Li films and directed The Transporter. Um, but he you know, kind of instilled a lot of this ideas about story and character and, and kind of uh, motivated action storytelling. So that was like, you know, what I started really appreciating more as well. And again, that kind of goes back to James Cameron, who just kind of like is the king of that, just really understanding, you know, the the kind of cross section of, of characters and action, and it's not just like action just for spectacle. Um, so yeah, I just really appreciate um, that type of work, and I think now I really enjoy uh, Edgar Wright. You know, Edgar Wright's uh, Shaun of the Dead was kind of like what we kind of wanted to do with the Paper Tigers. We were like, hey, you know, we were pitching it as you know. Uh, we want to do what for Kung Fu movie, what Shaun of the Dead did for zombie movies. And by that, I mean, it's just like something really fresh, but also very loving. Uh, something that wasn't like a deconstruction, but something that was also very new as well. And I think that was, uh, you know, the power of that film was just so appealing. 
obviously as well. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of influences that you know you can go up and down the list. Uh, Billy Wilder, you know, a huge screen uh, screenwriting directing influence. Uh, Brad Bird, again, a, a fantastic action filmmaker, great storyteller, and so on. So yeah, no, um, I can. But now I see the Edgar Wright thing that, that you mentioned it. I, I kind of feel silly for not having caught uh, <laughs> a very thematic kind of influence. And I think it was a smart move, too, that you guys didn't go overboard with or didn't do like mentioning the actual movies like and, 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 and kind of doing that thing, because then I think that has been done. Right. I think you can feel all the Kung Fu movies you guys watched without them being mentioned, mm -hmm. I certainly like, I got it all, you know? And, and um, uh, one thing I have to say that is for an experience that you might find funny is that I watched Paper Tigers after my wife went to sleep and we live in a very small place and I got yelled at for laughing very loud multiple <laughs> times. That's and, great. And waking her up uh, when I was watching it. But we'll get back to that in a minute. I want to drill down on this Corey Ewan and she has Now she has to watch it and see what all the fuss is about. Yeah, that. <laughs> I I told her I told her that because um, she doesn't generally like kung fu movies or action movies, but I told yeah. her like you might like this one because it's funny and you like funny movies, so you know. <laughs> um, I the only uh, she likes like gothic stuff, so I got her to watch The Bride with White Hair one time ah, and yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, Chinese Ghost Story. I was able to to trick her into those, but. Um, but let, let's drill down on this Corey Yoon thing. I'm interested in this relationship because um, I am a huge fan of his work, obviously. Um, and I, I, I think it's really cool that you got a, a relationship with him because uh, one of the things that's underrated about Corey um, Yoon um, specifically as a filmmaker is, and if you look at even some of the Hollywood stuff that he did fight coordination for, whether it's kiss of the dragon or, you know, some of the stuff he did with Jet Li, the transporter is that he ties story so well to the individual action scenes that he's doing and making sure that it advances the narrative. It's always been something that was a strength of his. And I think that comes from that coming from that, uh, that same uh, Peking opera tradition as, 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 as Jackie Chan and also, I must point out, he acted in one of my all-time favorite movies, Eastern Condors, <laughs> alongside all those grades. So he had um, a front row seat to see how a lot of these masters did their work before he even started his own career as a director. So how did you meet Corey and like, what was the story with that? Yeah, I mean, he's family, family's here in Seattle, and you recall No Retreat, No Surrender, so he had a lot of Seattle ties. Fortunately, mm -hmm. I, I was became a family friend, uh, and yeah, and he just kind of took me under his wing as far as, like, the stupid, not nose teenager with, you know, his backyard home videos, but he would sit and give me tips and tricks and pointers and all these things, so, uh, you know, basically, like you say, front row seat uh, to the master. At that time, he was starting to uh, transition or make his move to the States. You know, I think that at the time it was like 96, 97. So Lethal Weapon 4 was kind of like when Jet Li brought his team over. And so he was spending a little bit more time. So unfortunately, I was kind of like the only kind of kind of see also that type of uh, transition from kind of this old school Hong Kong filmmaking, but, you know, him also like starting to adjust to, to American filmmaking, which is kind of a big culture talk as well. So it's interesting to kind of watch you know, all those changes kind of happen in real time. Uh, but again, like you say, story was like king. Like he's his his big big mantra was like 
you can't have good action without a good story. And so everything, when it, you know, we rarely even talk about action design. We didn't, it was more about like what's the motivation, what's happening with the story and the characters, and that's how you start to design the action. You know, you can sit here and come up with a cool fight scene, cool moves, and all those things, but if it doesn't, you know, ground itself or get you know uh, inform, get informed by you know what's going on with the characters in the scene, you know, then then you might as well. It's just it's just a little more interchangeable, right? So, so you want it something that's a little more weaved into the story. That makes sense. So that stuff always kind of like was really indelible and just kind of made its mark because I, you know, if I, uh, I kind of think, you know, if I just kind of went down my own path of just like coming up with cool fight scenes and doing all these things, you know, I don't think they would have been as anchored uh, in any way. So his influence is just huge uh, in that sense. And you know, what's funny is I had in my notes to ask you if No Retreat, No Surrender had a role in you <laughs> Uh, meeting Corey Ewan because of the Seattle connection. Um, no, it was, yeah, that just happened as happenstance. Yeah, I did not. But I, I'm certainly aware of everyone knows no retreat, no surrender. So, yeah. Yeah. It's one of the great, ridiculous um, kung fu movies of all time. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I love no retreat, no, no surrender. But to get, well, yeah, I mean, to give no retreat, no surrender, it's props. Like in terms of like what he was doing, he was, a, he was really one of the first Hong Kong filmers to cross over to America. I mean, that was happening in the early 80s. Right. Uh, you know, kind of predates a lot of like other work that was happening. And then obviously discovering uh, Van Damme and all, all those things. So I think that's that's huge as well. It's it's so um, it's so obvious that his skills in that movie make it at No Retreat, No Surrender has great um, kung fu. So as silly as the story could be at times, like any serious kung fu movie fan is going to reckon, you know, is going to you know, game recognizes game, right? <laughs> and and that movie has like seriously good uh, fighting in it, and um, much more so than say like Karate Kid, for example. You know, which is a great movie. Don't get me wrong, but the yeah. fighting in No Retreat, No Surrender, you can tell sure. that some somebody with serious skills behind it. So when you I got into, was, um, yeah, I just think it's a bit of trivia. I think that's what happened when he Corey saw. Friday kid, he called up MCU and, and he just said, like, hey, America just ripped off Snake and Eagle Shadow, but with bad choreography. So then like MCU and like decided to kind of like figure out how to how to game game the system and start to do a remake. And then they did, you know, uh no retreat and surrender as kind of a USHK production and stuff. Yeah. So um yeah, that's really that movie I, I knew that it had a role <laughs> that was in my notes, but um and it makes sense bigger that, one for me yeah the bigger one for me was Hong Seok because I think at that time like that was like the top of the top of the food chain for me I mean even just before meeting him I was a huge fan of that film um so that was that was what I was really like excited yeah. about well and Jet Li brought him back over and over and over again so he, he you know yeah. he, you know yeah. and I, I'm huge Jet fan I I um I think um uh, he's underrated as an actor as well as anybody who's seen um, what was um, the movie with where he had the autistic son. Um, I can't, I'm, oh yeah, I'm forgetting that. Like, uh, ocean, ocean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. an incredible actor too. He's super underrated for that, and I think Corey Yoon brought out the best in him. So you um, obviously got into. You said you were filming. You started by kind of filming your own martial arts and. And, and people skating and, and Olympia and that kind of thing. 
uh, how early did you decide you were going to go to film school and, and take it really, really seriously? Well, I didn't go to film school, uh, but in also in that sense, I, I think I'm kind of a late bloomer. I don't know if you compared to like Spielberg or Scorsese's drawing storyboards when they were like four or three. You know, I, I think I was like maybe 11 or 12 uh, when I decided, you know, just trying it. It wasn't really even an ambition or just kind of like trying with a camera and trying to figure out even just what a cut was. I mean, uh, again, it was just like the whole mechanic of, of, of what movie making was. I was just really interested by that you know, what makes an edit or what makes, you know, just one scene go to another and how come you just go with flow uh, as an audience member. And, you know, I just thought that was such an interesting, almost like a magic trick. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to figure out how to do that magic trick and, and then try it, you know, with the, the meager, slim resources that I had. So how did you get into editing? Did you do that before or after your first short film? I think it was exactly by, by making the short film because we, you know, I didn't have a crew or I didn't have anybody uh, uh, to, to kind of, this was not a traditional film school where we had divisional labor. You had to like shoot it, write it, shoot and edit yourself. So I would, you know, write the idea, grab my friends, film it, go home, put it in like at that time, VHS decks and we were just cutting uh, linear. There was, there was before any of the nonlinear uh, stuff or before, you know, I could even afford any of that stuff. So we just had two VHS decks, just pause, record, pause, record and just uh, basically string edits that way. And that's how I kind of learned out, you know, how to be really decisive and very, you know, the uh, uh, intentional about the shots that you're doing and what shots and where the in and out points are. And I think that's kind of like where I really cut my teeth. Mm -hmm. And you've been editing uh, films from Vietnam. How, how did you get involved with doing that? It makes sense because uh, obviously it's a language you grew up speaking and it's a culture that you're aware of. Um, but how did you get into doing films from there? Yeah, so a lot of my friends and my, my peers uh, who are also filmmakers, they started going to Vietnam uh, to kind of get their features off the ground. And for whatever reason, you know, there's a, the whole conversation there about like flat healing or, you know, just opportunities. So a lot of uh, folks uh, that I knew were going to Vietnam, but they needed uh, editors. Uh, so I came over there uh, more as a favor because I'm not really an editor by trade or, you know, but it was just they needed people who knew the language, like you're saying, but also, you know, had the chops to edit. And so I kind of fit the bill on that sense. So uh, I followed a lot of great friends uh, making films and helping uh, support their movies. And those are all like big, big theatrical films that got releases in, in Vietnam. So it's like uh, they don't I think some of them are on Netflix, but it's like just uh, those movies are kind of just meant for the local audience. Uh, but, you know, there's there's just just like a, a wide studio release that you would see here just on a on a on a local country scale but the, on the national scale for Vietnam it's, it's different but the whole thing is like I just remember I was cutting a movie and you know I saw the trailer or I saw the billboard for the movie it's like coming soon and there's like a release date and everything so that was pretty cool and I was just like we're not even done with the movie yet and we have a release date so it's like it's kind of a different you know different speed obviously when you're working against a back date and uh as opposed to an independent film where you kind of sit there and tinker and fix and fuss, you know, for as long as you want. So, so you got a chance to actually go to Vietnam to do the editing. You didn't do that here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's really cool. And anytime you get to work on a film like that, and I've talked to people who, who, who've edited films and they say that, that you learn a lot about story and structure and that it's, it, you learn a lot that you can put into your screenplays by just being on that back end of, of being the final editor uh, on a film. So 
can you tell us a little bit about like what you learned about filmmaking or writing from from editing those movies? Well, you know, they say there's like three three times a script uh, movies written. You know, it's in screenplay, it's in the shooting, and it's in editing. So I think that's very true. That you're still constantly tinkering and fixing the not fixing, but kind of adjusting, making final decisions around the the structure and the dialogue, even to the end. Even you might be coming up with a need for an ADR line. And in a lot of ways that is writing as well. So um, there's a lot of like things that you start to appreciate and learn, you know, stuff that stuff that can't be solved in any other stage, but the screenwriting stage, True. you know, there's, you know, as an editor, you can be a magician, you know, you can do as much as you can, but you're not a magician. You can't like create, uh, you know, a great story or structure if it's not there on the page. So there's a lot of things that you start to appreciate, like how to fix things from square one and respect the screenwriting process, at least for me, when I get to double back and, you know, start go back to a screenwriting mode, you know, and start to think about uh, things that need to be done that can't be, can't be fixed. And in any other, that can't be fixed in post, right? Or you can't right. be fixed on set, you know? So you have to square that away uh, when you can uh, in that moment during the screenwriting phase. So it's, it's, also, it's also just a way of kind of respecting um, uh, the screenwriting stage, but also you start to appreciate um, the economy that you can also get with editing, whereas a lot of times stuff that might be overwritten or a little bit more, uh, more not, not as much as needed in the final product than, than what comes out in the script, if that makes sense, you know? So start to learn a lot of economy. I don't think there's a way around it, to be honest, because I think there's a time where you have to write something in the screenplay just to make sure everybody's on the same page. And then the crew is on the same page and your cast is on the same page. And then when you do it, and then when editing comes around, they can start peeling that back. Because now that everybody's, everybody understands now, mm. uh, if that if that makes any sense. So it's just so it's an interesting kind of 360 forward and front and back kind of experience. Can I go through screenwriting and then production and editing and go back to screenwriting? Yeah. So I, I'm I'm assuming that there are a lot of times where that editing experience uh was an influence when you're sitting when you're on the set and you've got the camera and all the actors and everybody gathered that there's times where you're probably thinking well it's okay if i film this i can cut cut around this or i can work with this or but you know i'm sure you're thinking as an editor in those moments all the time yeah yeah you find the bits and pieces and you start to know when you can move on or you know all the stuff that you um absolutely essentially need versus all the other stuff However, I will say sometimes you can get, you don't want to edit too harshly in camera yet because there's a lot of options you still want to leave on the table. You should get your coverage. And I think that every editor uh, certainly appreciates that. But also you should appreciate giving your actors different runs, even though you feel like you might have gotten just get like, you know, get one or two uh, extra ones because they might add labor, they might improv or might surprise you. Because uh, if you're too like honed in with those scissors, you know, you kind of close yourself off to any surprises and possibilities. And so it's kind of a balance between the two. I think for, for me, the biggest lesson actually I learned uh, from editing films was actually to get an editor uh, for the movie <laughs> I was going to direct. You know, it was like, it was something that was really important uh, that I thought I needed because it, you need someone with that uh, thousand mile view or just kind of that uh, very objective. Um, Who hasn't thing. been yes, living with the story for eight years, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I have, yeah, there's a conversation when we had, you know, financing, it's like, well, why can't you edit? How come we have a line item for an editor? Why aren't you editing? It's like, well, you need that. Like that. So to my producer's credit, my team's credit, you know, we all believe this was important as well. But you know, 
oftentimes people think that's the first thing to go if you have a writer, director, editor, you know, someone who can kind of do all those things. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so your short film, uh, Bookie, what, how did that impact? And then we, we finally get to talk about Paper Tigers. I know I've, I've, <laughs> I've been drilling down a lot. Hey, but, all good. But, but Bookie, um, you know, what role did this play in, in, I mean, you did a short concept film for, to show what you could do with Paper Tigers, but a lot of, of doing a short film is just showing like the talent that, that you can bring to bigger projects, right? So what's the story with this short film, Bookie? Yeah, Bookie was one of the, probably my biggest short film. It was kind of that big, kind of big leap uh, from the previous shorts that I made. So that was kind of a big evolutionary step in terms of the, my filmmaking. But Bookie was a really important uh, film that I made uh, because I also started to crystallize kind of the theme that I was working with. Uh, my DP, Sean Mayer, and uh, Ken Kidigua, our action director, who you'll see in the film, but also, you know, we're a big part of uh, making the Paper Tigers as well. Um, so, and our producer, that's how we met our, a lot of my producing team uh, started to form around uh, Bookie. And it was a way kind of like, almost like our tigers as well. You know, in the movie, it's like, we made kind of a pact. It's like, hey, wherever we go, you know, when we get a chance to make our first feature, we're all doing it. We're getting back, the band back together and we're going to do it together. Um, so that was kind of a, a very cool thing that we were able to kind of like awesome. make bookie go off and do our work go off and like uh sean you know kept working in the camera department ken started working in action you know i started you know writing directing a little bit more and so we all got like honed our skills no one sat around you know mm -hmm. and everyone just kind of like kept working kept working until the opportunity came for us to come back together uh to make the movie and, and it happened so that was kind of like a, a nice kind of bookend uh to be able to start you know doing a short film together and then suddenly a feature film together uh, who would have thought? Right, and and the the movie has a community feeling to it. It really does. Um, like it, it. I think you can get that sense of it from watching it. I I don't know how else to explain it other than it feels like a movie that was very passionate for for everyone that was involved in making it. It looked like you guys were having a good time um, making it. So definitely a lot of great memories. A lot of uh. A lot, of, a lot of challenges, obviously, but I think, you know, at, at that time, I think everybody was really into, you know, I think it's a common thing to call it a calling card short. It became that for me, but it wasn't like when we set out to make it, it was like, we just want to tell a story. Let's just find the story that we really love and passionate about and, and figure out a way to make it happen. And so the same way with the Paper Tigers, it's kind of like that, you know, um, it wasn't, you know, too much of a career, I guess, how would you say a calculated kind of career move that now you make a short that's really polished and now you can and then you shop it around like we just wanted to uh, it was black and white because we thought it was a very specific aesthetic to the story uh, mm -hmm. that we wanted to make but if you know and common film festival wisdom is like don't do black and white all those things so it's like we just kind of like decided to kind of do our own thing at that point so now, now, Paper Tigers is a project that you've been that that you originally conceived of as far back as 2011, according to to my research. That it's yeah. um, so it should be noted that it predates Cobra Kai, um, <laughs> and um, although uh, I'm sure that didn't hurt your process, I'm sure you guys um, appreciated the success of Cobra Kai. But here's the thing: like you, you worked on this for so long. What, what was the original inspiration um, for it? And how much do you feel like the, the original 
that that you've come close to the original idea or how how far away from it are you because it, it it seems like such a, a, a it seems like a passion project just you know oozing with it in all the right ways um, definitely yeah thank you uh it came from again it came from a feeling just a mood that i was having of falling short and falling away kind of those two kind of like feelings uh specifically about film and martial arts those are kind of my two young passions that i started when i was really young uh but more specifically about film you know i started out really young like i said i worked with a crew that we always wanted to get back together and just kind of really uh you know had faith in each other hope we could do but you know things happen and then uh you know uh film is a business and you know there's all kind of like this seedier side and unseemly part of it and just kind of that not the cool stuff that I signed up for, you know? And so I was just kind of lock, wanted to lock into that feeling of kind of fading away from your, from something that you were very passionate about or feeling, you know, or, or either because uh, your own views are different or because the whole kind of system kind of beat you out of it. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of like drill on that, on that and then like put that in kind of a martial arts uh, theme and see what that would look like. And that's how I kind of came up with these characters about these guys who are falling away from, you know, one thing, something they were once very passionate about and what that all is. And that's a kind of a common, you know, uh, human emotion enough that, you know, people can relate to, but we just want to kind of like explore that in this martial arts world. Right. How many files, how many final draft files do you think you have <laughs> on your computer of this script? How many would you get, would you guess? Um, Hard to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a, see, I'm a control S fiend. So you know, who's to say what is a version of a file? Because if I'm, I'm saving, you know, literally like every, every time I write a sentence, I'm just afraid of anything crashing or anything like that. Uh, so, and I'll go back and then you have these tweaks and, and all these things. In terms of like major passes, I think I would say maybe five or five, five or six major passes on it. Uh, it was, it was also the thing that I was, I was working in editing at the same time when I was still, you know, going through writing. So it was almost like, you sit, you write it, you shelve it, you come back to it. So there's all this kind of like, it's not a very linear process. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend it to anyone. So, but uh, it was just kind of a, a, a weird way. But it, at, at the end of the process, it ended up being locked. And uh, when we started looking for financing, not much changed really uh, by the time we got to production. Uh, yes, the actors came in and, and, and improv and came up with some great stuff. And then editing, we you know made some changes and cut some scenes. But in terms of like the essence, like we never really took like development notes uh, at all. It was pretty, it was pretty well formed by the time that I finished writing the script to the point where we went to camera. Mm, that's awesome. Did you, I mean, what's your process? Do you um, outline heavily? Do you do note cards before you start writing or, or do you just jump, jump in, see the pants? I'm a slow writer, admittedly. I like to just there is a bit of a research phase and and research meaning like well because i kind of know martial arts uh as a world but it's also i wanted to kind of explore people's feelings so i i actually spent a lot of time talking to my martial arts classmates and my you know all my old kung fu buddies and just kind of checking in where they were in life it was, it was a nice way to kind of catch up with old friends but also kind of checking in with them and see hey you know if our master died like what would you do like and start to kind of like Kind of explore right. all those things and that, that was you know several months before i even put pen to paper at all it was just kind of sitting here and you shooting the breeze uh with each other and just kind of like and i was just like you know would you get my back if i had to go fight and he was like, i got your back it was like okay but what if i had to 
I know you have a wife and you have a new kid, but are you going to come train me like every day? It's like, I don't know about every day, but <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and you start kind of like, it's funny where you had, I, you know, all my different buddies had different kind of reactions and commitments and ideas and they were all valid. And so it was also kind of a way to kind of like sift through all those uh, kind of relationships that we have into the film. Right. And, and as far back as the writing process, I'm sure you were thinking about the nuances of the characters and, and, and representation, because obviously there, there could be problems with silly Americans who think that, for example, that all Asians do martial arts or whatever, like stereotypes that, that people had, but you had a cross-section of characters with, within within the story and specifically uh ron ewan's character who uh is the mvp of this movie in my opinion <laughs> and we'll talk yeah. about him a little bit more when we get into that yeah. to, to the movie but in the writing process how 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 aware were you of 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 i mean there's a lot of nuances in the characters so i, I it seems like you were thinking about that from the beginning yeah, ultimately, like I said, like it started when I was talking to my friends and I wanted to do justice to our experiences and stuff that we knew and, and, and knew to be true, right? And so if we had a false note or had any characters that, you know, were caricatures or didn't feel like any right, like it, all of us would call BS on it or they'd call me out on BS if I were to even allow that to be on screen. So it was a bit of an, an honesty check to kind of portray the world that we knew. And obviously, you know, in a, in, in a movie form, it's a little... Uh, bigger you know but it's like the essence is all there and so all these characters are all kind of like uh, you know amalgamations of either me or just kind of like people I knew and I know the actors were very keen on set every day they kept asking me like which character was me and it's like but they're all me in that sense so mm -hmm. at, at any rate it was what I'm trying to say is like it, it's just really comes from a place of honesty and just kind of like as long as your bs meter doesn't go off you know it, it feels authentic it feels real and you start to go down that route and I think that's the same reason why we were, I guess, able to kind of like balance, you know, the comedy and the drama, because it's really in the moments. If the moment felt funny, sometimes it is funny with your buddies and sometimes it's sad and tragic with your mm -hmm. buddies and you have to, you know, hug and hold hands. So it's like all those things that and, and we wanted to kind of capture all that experience. Yeah. And Danny's relationship with his son is like a really crucial and important part of the story. One of the things that's hard is because you were playing with a with a movie cliche. However, what's important about it in this sense is putting it into a kung fu movie. It it is something we haven't seen before. Even though it's a a complete movie cliche to have the dad who wants to go to the office and do all that thing in the context of of the kung fu movie, it it was you know it was refreshing to see like his character, you know. It's funny because it's like, when was the last Kung Fu movie where you saw where the guy like really wanted to get to the office to make sure he got his work done? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've never exactly. seen that before in a Kung Fu movie, right? Yeah. And it gave uh, um, Danny, was it Danny Eight Hands? Yeah, which was a great, which was a great nickname, by the way. And Danny was, 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 uh, was, was a really great character. Him talking to his son about, being bullied and all that you had really fine lines you had to, to dance in the film can you, can you talk about on the page writing Danny and and the difference between on the page and and what we saw in the final film maybe yeah I mean that character is an interesting uh challenge you know I think also with the film it's exactly kind of that journey that we want to 
uh, be with him on as he goes from like this, you know, very uh, deficient dad or just this dad that's a little bit absent, uh, but also to become this present son in a way. So it's like, us like, and, and everything kind of comes full circle with his master, but also with his son and with his brothers. So it has all the kind of relationships uh, that we're trying to pull. Um, I think it was more about just trying to drill down on exactly what type of bad dad, you know, you know, yes, bad dad is kind of a, uh, a very common kind of a, a character trope, you could say, but, you know, but specifically, what is it about him? It's the guy that kind of like breaks his promises. And, and in the context of Kung Fu, it's a guy who, you know, this guy who's the inheritor of the clan, who's meant to uh, swear his life and promise his life, you know, on something. And, you know, he can't even keep, you know, the simplest promise. And that, that, that I think is, you know, what we started to kind of unpack and follow through uh, with, with, uh, with the story. Um, as we got to the production, you know, Elaine Oi, um, him and I had a lot of this conversation about trying to figure out where he was in the movie, because he's a character that's not always arriving. And um, it's a complex thing because he's almost like two steps forward, one step back, even as you go through the film. Um, because I think what's happening here is something that's very common to Asian Americans is, is we call it like a code switching. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, you know, in, in, in a job or work environment, we speak a certain voice. And then when we're with our family, we speak another voice. So we always have to like assume different identities uh, to get by or kind of be accepted. And it's pronounced, especially with people who, who live in, you know, multicultural uh, uh, lives or households. And so Danny is kind of a multicultural uh, person because at once he's a suburban dad, but all, he's also a leader and inheritor of a martial arts clan. And so you see him like really flaky with his son and his ex-wife, but then when his brother's around him, he has to kind of assume this leadership role just by default because that's who he who he is in, in, in a sense. And it, it's branded literally on his arm uh, as such. And so he also has to kind of like dodge back and forth as, you know, go from home and then go for, to Kung, Kung Fu school. His identity is constantly code switching. And so you, it's never quite that clear arc or clear line, but it is in a way, both of them are kind of starting to pull each other into that. So that's a very delicate thing to do. And Elaine, you know, does it magnificently. It's just, you know, we, I just remember having a lot of these conversations about where exactly were we in Danny's journey as we were filming, because you're not, you're, not, you're not filming in sequence. And so right. you always have to kind of like track exactly where we are and what type of performance it is. Is he, is he slick? Is he too slick? Or is he actually honest? Is he upfront? <sighs> is he, you know, actually being a leader in this moment? Um, right. And see, one of the things about um, Danny and his code switching it, is that, um, you know, he he has this very specific when he's with his Kung Fu family he has this very specific like kind of identity that he's living up to specifically as the guy who never lost, you know, which kind of gets thrown out the first time he gets his ass handed to him as an adult. <laughs> and yeah. uh, um I think there's a scene where they say like, you're our best guy. Right. And <laughs> like, you know, and, and whereas like, you know, one of his crew uh, has bad knee, can't even walk that kind of thing. So, and there was all kinds of funny moments with that before we dive into that, another character that I think was really, would have been a really interesting character, right. Is Carter, who is the guy that they beat up all the time <laughs> as a kid. And like one of the cool things about, the way the story kind of had a reversal 
was that, you know, you fully expect Carter to become like the third act bad guy that, you know, Carter went and learned with their Sifu and got all that, you know, and then now they're going to have to show down with Carter in the end. And, and Carter ends up on a kind of different path. And I, I thought that was really refreshing. Um, also a hilarious performance of Carter um, and um, just a, a really great character. Can you tell us about writing uh, Carter? Yeah. Again, you know, if anyone's done martial arts, we all have a Carter in our lives. And then we all kind of like, know this one person that's a bit of an asia foul that's really you know really into it and all that and tries too hard in that sense uh but what i find really endearing about carter is that he's the one who still put in the time you know versus the tigers who kind of fall to the wayside and so he is entitled to his pride you know he's entitled to look down on these guys he's entitled to lecture them he's entitled to speak chinese to them you know because he's put in the work and, uh, and that's something that we really, um, Matt, Matt Page, the actor, and I, you know, talked about a lot. It's like, when you talk to these guys, just earn it. Like, don't, don't play it surfacey, you know, don't be a caricature, because, uh, you know, on the page, it could easily be that. But, like, be the guy who put in all that work and time, and all of a sudden, these guys come in out of nowhere trying to, you know, take your throne all of a sudden. And so I think that was something that really created an interesting dynamic. And what really comes out in rehearsals that we started to see was that it wasn't really enemies, but it was more like four brothers, but the fourth one tries to be part of the three, but can't, you know? It's like, right. they always like push them out. So that became much more the vibe when you saw the three, uh, the three tigers and Carter interact a lot more. We started kind of leaning in on that, started developing that type of thing. And that's a really fun thing to kind of see in rehearsal uh, because, you know, it's not quite on the page, but you start to see the actors kind of bring uh, that to life. And it's really fun to watch. You know, an interesting thing about Carter is I don't think that young kids are going to fully understand this character because Carter is very much an archetype of, you know, the kids today, like, are not, I don't know that they bully, like, members of their own, like, kind of friend <laughs> unit like we used to. And yeah. when you said everybody has a Carter, like, I'm thinking of, like, I've got a group of friends that I know from, like, from hardcore and punk rock that we had one friend who we were super mean to all the time who he was carter he put in the work and yeah. he was around all the time we his nick we called him lummox which is like one of the meanest things in the world right <laughs> and this guy like kept coming around like carter like and um stuck it out and was like eventually like did bands and things and like right yeah. same kind of thing but um, I think some of these guys like Carter are people who like they got bullied, but they didn't, it made them harder and it made them like more serious. And, and so I definitely related to Carter as a character, but <laughs> he was, he's somebody that I don't know that millennial kids who don't have that dynamic of the one kid that got picked on, who became hard <laughs> because of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Who knows? We'll have to take a survey. But I do do know, like, I think a lot of them pick up on the fact, you know, that he's this he's this guy who appropriates and kind of like comes in and assumes all this culture. And, and there is a general uh, fringe, as the kids say, you know, there's always this cringe factor to Carter as well, for sure. So I think they can pick up on it. That's true. And there, there's the cringe factor with the, the other the young martial artists who 
go up and take selfies with her Sifu's photo <laughs> at the at the funeral. Yeah. And then like when when they win a fight and they're like, you know, <laughs> like no, those those guys, those those kids were did some great martial arts. Where did they come from in this process? Well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about casting a little bit. Like yeah. let, let's keep a little bit more about the writing because once you get the three the three tigers and you know that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna grow up and they're gonna they're gonna have this arc. How much of um how much of the arc changed from from first draft to 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 shooting script? The arc uh, for the character for Danny for, or for- yeah for the tigers themselves the three the, th- the arc yeah the arc was pretty solid like I, in terms of like those are things that the themes and the arcs you have to really nail down in the writing like you can't save it in the shooting or the editing so a lot of the stuff was pretty nailed down uh it got sharper and more refined and clarified for sure uh when we started filming and the characters started imbuing all those things a little bit more and then we were editing all those yeah for sure but i think the arcs were all pretty pretty well laid out what and- i wanted to make sure it was very laid out so the actors had something places to go you know that you're giving them that yeah, and so you started um, with a short concept film and doing crowdfunding, but eventually, I mean, it's still made independently. But um, you know, this was an important part of the process. What did you, you know, that I'm sure got the idea out there, and it was something that you could hand to actors to say, like, "Hey, you can trust me. I'm, I'm, go- I'm going to make this happen. You know, I have the skills. Right? That's what doing that is for. Right?" uh you would think (laughs) you would think on paper it sounds good i think there was a lot of reticence and uh at least for us our producer uh yuji okamoto who you may know as as an actor and credit kid too and and cobra kai chosen uh he was one of our key producers and so he knew he knew ron uh yuan really well they go back long so he had reached out to ron about playing hing and so ron came on pretty early a couple uh months earlier uh, than everybody else. Uh, so Ron was pretty, pretty gung ho. Uh, when we found Elaine and Mikkel, it was surpassing. Uh, and we uh, found, and they were great. They were just like standouts and we, we wanted them a part of the film. But uh, Elaine will tell you this because Elaine and I have talked about this afterwards. Like he, he kind of hesitated because he, he was a little unsure about um, playing martial arts, you know, because there's, mm. for, as Asian American actors, you know, there's a bit of a baggage or kind of a, kind of concern about whether the martial arts will stereotype them or make them, you know, look bad and all those things. So they're, you know, a martial arts film on the, on the face of it, you know, when he said his agent called uh, with a project, you know, and, you know, he wasn't too thrilled by it, but he went out for it and read for it. They saw the sides and he saw some of the character work that was there and he, he appreciated that. So he thought there was something there and it wasn't until meeting me and then, you know, meeting the team that he started feeling a little more comfortable about making it. Um, so that that's kind of like uh, the the things. Yeah, of course we can set set the table and and try to make sure the package is in, is as enticing as possible. And you know you can't lose with this you know this team. But you know at the end of the day, yeah. it's still sometimes it's a leap of faith because you never know it goes either way. And it, it, and all that being said, you know it's a miracle that a movie can get made. Period. Any movie, know, and like yes. Any movie can get made. So I think uh, I hope you know we can appreciate you know just the challenges of, of making a film and but all the things that could go wrong or you even if our characters were off our chemistry was off like thankfully with the three tigers that ann carter you know they all 
had its great chemistry. But what if one person was off? It would it would totally you know uh, set everything off and 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 not make it successful. So there's so many things that could go wrong and awry uh, for in a film. So yeah, and so what and so when you start casting and and yeah, I do think we need to get into Ron uh, Ewan right now. And first of all, his <laughs> it was his brother that played the Sifu, right? Like, yeah. 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 He, he was great too. Um, uh, but Ron Ewan in this movie, just, oh my God, he was so great. And like so many things like, um, like the toupee and the, and the, you know, not the hair, um, but you know, he, he had to be so physical with being able to play like the bad knee and to be able to, but you know he's he's been around for a long time, so he brought a lot of experience to this. What was it like working with him and like and and crafting this character? It it must have just been super fun all the time. Like this character is great; he's so funny. Yeah, Ron is a real vet, so I think we really leaned on him to kind of embrace that physicality because you know that character is so much you know in the body as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when Ron came on board. That's, that's actually the toupee thing like that stuff we that wasn't in the script so because when Ron came on board he was he, he had a, a shaved head he was bald so we were like okay what could we do with that and start to kind of play with that up as an idea and so that kind of slipped in into production on that sense and he had like you know this wig uh sommelier or whatever <laughs> all these like toupee he was like I got a toupee guy and he's like went and took photos and sent us different samples of ones to approve and but like for some reason he had just had this people to call on uh he was ready for the moment in some sense but uh but uh yeah and then we just kind of embraced that and then action team got excited and started incorporating that into the choreography and all those things and and just you know and then it informs the character because he's like he literally is a guy who lives in the past you know so what better way is like this 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 uh this uh visual form of of him holding on to who he once was so it all just kind of like started meshing together really well uh and ron uh, (laughs) Ron, and then again, when you see the actors show up, you, you don't really know what card you're being dealt with until you actually see what they all look like, you know, together. And so when Elaine came, Elaine is a very slender man, like he's a very uh, slim profile. And so I actually had to ask Ron to gain more weight uh, to kind of like create a little bit more contrast. Uh, and so he, he had to gain some weight from off of Mulan. I think it was about net uh, 40 pounds at that point. And I had asked him, like, you gotta, you gotta, you got to get more weight. And he's like, I just got 40 pounds over, bro. And I was like, no, but your arms, like his arms, he still lifts. Like he has the, this, but he still lifts. And I was like, you gotta, you gotta let it all go. So he started like doing kind of a crash diet or a crash, you know, awakening uh, right before uh, shooting about three, four weeks in advance. And he started going to Din Tai Fung and like eating and then grabbing all the cast. And like, he would make sure they would all go and eat with him so that he'd just eat sodium and just kind of like basically uh, balloon up. So eventually, I think he netted about like 60 pounds uh, over from from kind of the usual weight. So uh, and so stuff like that, you know, Ron was a champ in that sense because it, it all kind of informs his, his, his character. And he's, you know, really well experienced with combat and screen combat and, and all those things. Uh, but then adding, you know, 60 pounds to your frame uh, changes the way you move your body. Even, you know, you jiggle a lot more than you you remember even was right. possible so it informs not everyone you know, samo hung <laughs> yeah exactly so so even him knowing choreography he could do all those things but he's throwing in his body in a different way now because now that he has you know more weight so again that always informs all the his character stuff so. 
but that that's just a naturalism for what's going on for the character because the character hasn't probably done martial arts since since yeah, he was 60 absolutely. pounds lighter you know yeah exactly so that made sense yeah and his character um he's the one that just really believes in everything you know more hardcore than everybody else so you know he's he's such an he's such an important character to the story on so many levels and he's kind of like in a lot of ways he's the heart of the film so he 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 plays such a he's so good in this movie like seriously i mvp um (laughs) um but filming in seattle too like you guys had a lot of support from the asian community in seattle to make this happen um because you filmed for what 34 days in seattle and it seems like from everything i've read it seemed like you guys got a lot of support from the asian community to make this happen um can you talk a little bit about that because that's really cool well i think even just kind of painting the broader picture seattle's such a rich history that of martial arts that we want to kind of like shed light on and set the story here of Bruce Lee when he first came to uh, the United States you know he spent his early formative years in Seattle you know, met his wife here he opened his first kung fu school he went to the University of Washington so uh, all the students that he's he taught there you know still teach to this day so he, he leaves kind of like this grand legacy here in the Pacific Northwest so uh, that's something that we always wanted to pay tribute to but also the community that we had here uh, was also like something that was really important in Chinatown if you ever come to Chinatown in Seattle, it's actually called the Chinatown International District, uh, which kind of acknowledges all the history, not just Chinese, but Filipino and Japanese and Vietnamese and, and so on. So it's all, all like a whole community of Asian Americans in, you know, working and working and building businesses in this area. So uh, they were definitely a community that we leaned on because we shot most of the film, you know, in Chinatown, kind of putzing around all the back alleys and stuff like that. So we had a lot of uh, really wonderful encounters, you know, people, bakers would come out and bring snacks with all the, to, to, to our cast and crew. And then like people like Boba, you know, our crew would go do Boba runs. And, and it was just a really cool thing that we could have, you know, our film crew just be in this community and be embraced by them. Yeah. And I know I, uh, recently when I posted about this movie, a friend from Seattle was just very proud of the fact that the movie was actually shot in Seattle and not, toronto for seattle oh yeah you know <laughs> or, um, or vancouver right so yeah often yeah like the city gets doubled for in vancouver <laughs> right right and um so i think uh, the pride that it, it seems like the seattle community just really you know bought into this movie um and i'm sure at some point some ridiculous studio or financer or backer at some point tried to get you to um I don't know, cast Clint Eastwood or whatever, some, some like, some, some, some. I wish we could get Clint Eastwood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deal, deal done. Let's do yeah. it. Um, yeah. But I'm sure they tried to get you to, to get some, to kind of whitewash the story or do something like that. And, and I think that um, one of the things that I think is really cool about the movie is that there's, there's a, there's a, there's an integrity to it that that um that comes through not just in the earnestness of the um kind of nostalgia parts of the story um but also just you know in in the the minute to minute parts of the story it just it comes across 
I just wanted to say that. So thank you. Yeah. And um, so let's talk about uh, like on the filming process. What, what are some of the most exciting surprises that kind of came out of like of, of making this is your first series yeah, I've, I've, a lifetime of watching kung fu movies this is the first time you made one right from beginning to end like a full-length yeah. kung fu movie like what did you learn about the process was there anything you went back to Corey you and and said like oh i wish i had known this or i learned <laughs> this <laughs> right yeah it's a weird thing because with an independent film it took about 10 years uh, to kind of get to where we are today. Uh, but you're sitting for so many years dreaming about it, trying to pitch people to, you know, uh, put in their money and invest and so on. Uh, and then when it finally happened, you like, go, 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 because suddenly uh, you have real schedules to deal with. Actors are only available for certain windows. And so it was a, kind of a weird uh, gear shift suddenly to kind of sit around and talk about something for so many years and suddenly, well, let's go. Let's like, here's, here's your chance. And so that was kind of like an interesting scramble because we actually, I wish we had a little more time on prep, uh, but we actually, you know, had a really compressed uh, pre-production schedule uh, to be able to even get this off the ground because everybody, you know, for an indie film, people are kind of making windows and concessions for you as well. So it's a lot of like fancy dancing uh, to make it happen uh, logistically. Um, so I don't know if there was anything that, uh, I didn't have time to sit at anybody's, you know, uh, foot and learn any lessons. It was just kind of survival mode for about 35 days, just kind of like go right. and then figure out, you know, how to get it done. And just, just really at that, at that point, you know, everything that you've done to prepare yourself up to that moment, you know, it, you, you either sink or swim. And so it was a little bit uh, definitely just kind of like a go, go, go moment where everybody was just like basically trying to make sure our hair wasn't on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, Elaine, like uh, being like first on the call sheet, um, had, a, had a lot of responsibilities. And you said that you had this conversation with him. Like, did you ever get a chance to reflect at the end of like, you know, um, about what this meant for, for the lead actor, like to, to play this character at, at, the, at the end? Because he really did an amazing job of, of, of giving Danny um, nuance. I, th I thought he was great. Too. yeah yeah i don't know if we i mean i we all I, you know we were all very pleased with what he did and we've always kind of like uh did our high fives and pat on the back but you know being during covid like we just never really had an opportunity to really have like a real like premiere and then kick back and like celebrate our successes we had a couple uh cast and crew screenings and stuff like that but we never had like a proper kind of get together uh, so I think we still owe each other that, but we have done Q and A's and, and panels and zoom panels and, 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 and stuff like that together. So I can kind of hear him speak about it, uh, with an audience and he's certainly, he's very proud of it. I think it was just all kind of going back to the story about how he was initially hesitant about making the film. I think, you know, certainly now he's, you know, very pleased with how it turned out. Uh, but I think it was, you know, obviously a leap of faith and just kind of a, a big trust fall to, to kind of even even if all the elements like the script just, you know, reads well and the team looks good and all those things, but you know, you just, uh, you always have this knot in your stomach about like, what is the final film going to come out as? And so <laughs> I think that's, that's, uh, I think that to all the, all of them, I think they're very happy with how it turned out. Um, they should be. Um, now, what was the feeling like sitting down and watching it on the big screen for the first time? Or, I mean, you, you were, you were involved in the process of, 
I'm sure you were overseeing your editor and all that. And mm-hmm. So you probably watched it a bazillion times, but did, I mean, you got a chance to watch it with an audience, right? So I know these times it's weird, <laughs> you know, for that, but eventually, yeah, eventually we did. It wasn't even after our, we did a virtual film festival run. Uh, so it wasn't until I think maybe we got it in kind of fits and starts. So we had one where we had a drive-in screening here in Seattle at the Seattle Asian American Film Festival. So that was kind of like a first with a community, but it wasn't like, you know, in a proper uh, theater space. But it was, uh, I just remember our producer, Alan, he was just like walking around, stalking all these cars, trying to gauge reactions, you know, from outside uh, the window. So I, <laughs> right. that was like, you know, it was like we were kind of like, you know, uh, junkies in that sense. And we were just trying to like, trying to get some type of fix here. Uh, but then it wasn't until like we had a theatrical release in May uh, that we started finally be able to sit in a theater with an audience and and and, and it's interesting because everyone had masks at that time too so even yeah. the humor or the, the the laughter was a little muted but you could kind of get the sense of where it is so we're still kind of like coming out of the woods and still enjoying and watching the movie with 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 the audience but you know we're we're we're, we're trying to enjoy every moment that we can uh in any way that we can yeah and you know and i already talked about how i watched i watched the movie really late um there was a for me, <coughs> excuse me, when I turned it on as a late night movie, I thought, you know, maybe I'll fall asleep, whatever, and I'll finish mm-hmm. it later. But man, I was laughing the whole time, cracking up and, 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 you know, um, it, it, it didn't lose me at all, even though it was super late when I, when I turned yeah. it on. And that's, that's a sign, which first of all, by the way, I have a history of watching late night Kung Fu movies because of where I grew up in Indiana <laughs> with Black Belt Theater. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, that's, it, it's a great, it's, it, it's a really a great film. Now working with the, those young actors who played the, like the kids that they fight, who did the, the selfies with the, with the, you must've felt like a kinship to these kids that, are kind of the next generation that are doing this right like that that was really kind of a yeah. neat and fun part of the story they were awesome by the way yeah. like that pool fight is is great um and i love how they don't they they don't realize they have to get down <laughs> to the pool at first. <laughs> like, um yeah. yeah that was that was great um but um but yeah so with paper tigers like now that it's done, now now that now that it's a thing, you know where 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 are you going next? Now that you've um, you know done this awesome movie, and now it's gotten distribution, and people are seeing it on Netflix, like, and and everybody I know that's that's seen it, they're into kung fu movies, like, thank me for telling them to watch it, and and you know, and all that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really cool to see how it's kind of growing too, and people are seeing it. Like, where where are you going from here? Yeah, well, hopefully we can still build, you know, obviously the movie uh, is, is well known by a certain circle, but we'd love to kind of keep that circle growing and get everyone to kind of uh, know about and talk about the film. Uh, so we're, we're still doing screenings, you know, we still have a lot of host screenings uh, in, in theaters and in person. And actually just this week, we're headed out to actually some universities. Uh, so we're kind of doing the academic circuit as well, you know, screening the film and discussing about the film as well. So, you know, folks, folks can basically go to our website, papertigersmovie.com and uh, find all the screening info. And then hopefully you can see us in person or just kind of follow and get the hard copy of Blu-ray and all that stuff. Uh, so we're still you know, on the road uh, showing the film. I am working on some ideas and trying to figure out kind of the next steps and figure out 
uh, what the next project might be, but those are still kind of in the idea stage. And again, it's kind of like, like I said, I'm a bit of a slow writer, so I kind of like to sit and talk about it before I even write anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, this, this is uh, a really excellent film and um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this process. And uh, is there anything else that you, you want to, um, especially to the writers that are out there, uh, because you know, a lot of my listeners are, are, are writers who you know, look for advice for, for, for moving forward. But yeah, I think you said something that is, that's really important for people to remember. Every, making movies is a lot harder than people who haven't done it you know um realize every movie is a miracle you know that um the, the different forces that it took to put this together are 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 just you know that's why i think filmmakers root for other filmmakers a lot more than you know uh, yeah. it's a lot harder for a filmmaker to tell somebody that the movie's not so great once they've they've, yeah. they've yeah. been Absolutely. in the trenches right and um so after having birthed this miracle of this film, like what advice do you have for people starting off? As um, we're in the maternity ward and we're still, you know, nursing our film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting thing. I think obviously, you know, worry about the craft and focus on, on, on the things that matter, you know, all those things about, you know, next script sales or, you know, all that contest stuff. I think, you know, don't, don't get caught up in that and don't, put your worth in that uh because i think when you dedicate yourself to the craft you kind of know the work that it takes and you recognize yeah how hard it is and you when you come out to the other side and, and you see how the script turns out you know you can be proud of it and no one can take that away from you you know whether whether script score or some evaluation or you know, all the you know if it gets passed or it just has trouble getting made like don't worry about it if you really feel like you did you've done the work and you can certainly hold your head high so I would certainly encourage, you know, to find our worth and our value in relationship to the work that we put into it, because uh, I think that, you know, that there is a, a function to that. Um, and uh, yeah, it just kind of depends if you're a writer trying to get it made by others or being a writer director, it's, uh, you know, those are all kind of like more specific uh, words of encouragement. But I think it's also just understanding that many hands will touch the script to make it hopefully make it better. And you have to kind of trust that process and, and it is a trust process. Uh, but uh, it is, you know, the script itself is not the end all be all, but it certainly is. It's uh, it is pointing the way. And uh, so just kind of know that no one can make a movie without you. <laughs> well, and it's funny because I, I look at it as like, man, your movie is done. You, you made it. You got it out there. And I feel like and I can hear in your voice that you feel like you still have a long way to go to, to making this movie, um, you know, exists in the world the way you want it to, you know, to be seen by people. And, and I, I get that, um, you know, uh, I, I've had the experience with, you know, some of my books sell more than others. And it's a lot of times it's not the one that I thought, you know, everyone would connect yeah. to, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right. And, um, and and so you can say to yourself like well what do i got to do to get people to pay attention to this one <laughs> right yeah. and, and it could be a, a a hard process but i think what's going to happen with paper tigers and i and and, and i i feel this and that's one of the reasons why 
you know, I immediately ran to the internet to write about it after I saw it was that it's a movie I connected to right away. I thought it was great. Um, it, it is, it's in the tradition of a, a no retreat, no surrender, but it's a, a much, <laughs> a much better film. And um, in the, in the sense that like, it's just a really excellent piece of work and and on on every level i want to i want to compliment you on that so um so how so last thing how can people find you find your work like um um how do they best support the movie i think the best way to find about the work the movie itself the paper tigers movie.com like i said uh you can follow us on the socials if you haven't seen it yet you know hopefully you can check it out ideally you know on amazon or itunes anything where there's a transaction or a Blu-ray or a DVD, certainly uh, that certainly helps directly the filmmakers more. Uh, Netflix is great, uh, but the, you know I think the best way to kind of like directly is to check in as 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 as, as direct as you can. We all have the web store. We have merch. If you like the movie enough, you can get some merch uh, off our website as well. T-shirts, hats, all the galore. Um, if you want to follow me, I think you can basically follow me through the social or the website, and uh, mm-hmm. so uh, you know get all my handles on there. And hopefully, you know, you can keep in touch and see what we're up to next. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get myself a Paper Tigers T-shirt. That that uh, hey, it's a movie yeah. I gotta I gotta represent. Yeah, um, Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is the whole reason why um, you know we we interacted a little bit on Twitter after I wrote about it and I reached out to you because I I just I I really believe this is an awesome movie that people need to see. So. Um, and uh, of course, I always like to learn from talking to writers. So, um, Bao, thank you for your time. Um, uh, and uh, please, um, if you get a chance to screen it in San Diego, I, I will. I will be there. Um, I think we uh, we're a fun city, and you know, Comic Con's coming back next year, so it might be a good time to yeah. to put something together. Um, but. Uh, it was great having you here and I uh, hope people uh, support the movie and uh, thanks for joining me on Postcards from a Dying World. Thanks for having me. Shout out San Diego. <laughs>